0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, we're wrapping up our discussion of The Gathering Storm, book 12 of The Wheel of Time, in the first of the Brandon Sanderson trilogy that ends the series as a whole. So, I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined, as I always am, by my co host, Drew McCaffrey.
1: How's it going, everybody?
0: I just want to get straight down to it. Drew, take it away, my man. Give us a recap.
1: All right. So, uh, where we picked up in this book was pretty much exactly halfway through. Uh, we started at chapter 26 and read through the end. And, uh, we, uh, basically kicked things off with a lot of Matt, where, uh, he and his crew go into Hinderstap and discover the crazy bubble of evil there, where, uh, anybody killed during the night, like, respawns every morning in the town. Um... Uh, from there, we went to Rand uh, as he went into uh, Bandar Ebon and found out, you know, like how bad things have gotten there. Uh, he also sets up a meeting or, you know, follows through on the meeting that he set up with Tuon, uh, where he tries to basically will her using his like Taverin influence um, to buckle under to him, but she resists. She decides he's way too dangerous. And uh, she goes back and uh, removes the veil, becomes Fortuona. And uh, she sends off the uh, uh, attack on Tarvalon. And pretty, pretty directly after that, we get uh, back to Egwene in the White Tower, where the tower gets attacked by the Shan in the midst of this, Egwene has a uh, conversation with Varen Mathwin, and we find out that Varen has been a member of the Black Aja all along, but working from the inside to take them down and record them. Egwene helps rally the forces in the White Tower to drive off the Shanchan. Uh, they successfully do, although Egwene like, passes out and swan in uh, uh, against Egwene's orders. Goes into the tower into Tarvalon and saves Egwene, you know her unconscious, uh, self in the in the aftermath of the attack, brings her back out, uh, to the rebel camp where Egwene enacts a plan to uncover the Black Ajah and purge them, including Shiriam. Some of them get away, but many of them do not. And then Egwene goes, leads uh, her her faction into Tarvalon to reunite the Tower. Egwene is chosen as Amarlin by the Tower-Eyes Sedai as well. And then we're back to Rand, where he kind of reaches his final breaking point, where um, Kadswene tries to use Tam to manipulate him, and Rand nearly kills Tam. He freaks out, he runs away, goes to uh, Ebu-Dar, where he wanders among the Shanchan and the Tuatha-An, before traveling to Dragon Mount, where he plans on basically destroying the world um, with the Chiyiden Call, but he has a um, an apotheosis <laughs> atop Dragon Mount, where he kind of realizes what it means to, you know, be given a second chance and to try again, and ends up destroying the Chiyiden Call instead of the world, and sort of comes to a realization about what Luce Theron has been all along, that being not a separate person, but just, you know, Rand himself and just a a figment of his madness. And that's uh, pretty much where we end. So...
0: Yeah. Yeah, We got I, some
1: fireworks in this part.
0: Yeah, and you know, just as an aside here, um, we are one man short today, at least more so than we normally are. It's just, you know, obviously it's it's just me and Drew here today. But that's that kind of works out because, as I was just telling Drew during our brief housekeeping before we started, I have literally the longest note file that I've ever created for this podcast <laughs> in terms of my talking points. So I have lots, lots to glow about, some things to bitch about, but mostly a whole ton of things to just celebrate in the second half of the gathering storm here so let's jump into our style discussion yeah all right okay so i know we talked about this for sure last week with craig but um i just want another reason to glow about this how well is sanderson continuing to nail dark rand as a character yeah like oh my god some of the pros he has in this volume coming from rand's point of view is astounding man how about you
1: uh yeah, I I agree. Um the the one chapter that always stands out to me is actually um when he's meeting with Tuon and we see it from Tuon's point of view. Mm. And uh this, you know, the description of this uh you know, aura, this dark aura around Rand and uh and how intense he is and, you know, and, and it's you know, it's really, it's really hardcore, and and we can understand because he did this from Tuan's point of view instead of from Rand's point of view. We uh, we get to see just how scary Rand has gotten because we don't quite have that same um, impression of things inside Rand's head as we do when we're in other people's heads around him and seeing just how dark he's gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely a, a something that I, I, a point that I've made before, and and something I love about what Jordan was able to to pull off, in creating a sense of terror and fear, or just perhaps in a lot of cases awe of certain characters of his, simply through someone else's eyes, utilizing mm-hmm. that point of view, that switch, and he do, and Sanderson just proves that he is just as effective at doing that, like it's it's awesome. It was like reading this entire second half was just a study and i guess ghostwriting even though it's not really ghostwriting um and just how to take up the torch and carry on someone else's style a little bit just enough i uh i i have nothing but good things to say about brandon's uh work here oh my god um yeah i i loved his proclivity for ending chapters that's something that's very classic sanderson with his with his cliffhangers i love them two Egwene chapters I want to bring to the forefront here. News in Teleronriad and a visit from Varen Sedai. Consecutive oh, yeah. chapters. Consecutive yeah. cliffhangers. One after another. <laughs> in the first, we have Varen freezing Egwene with a blatant lie. Boom. Big, big moment for the series. And in the second, Egwene is wrenched from the dream to the Chan attack on the tower and she's horrified that she's also unable to channel. What, like, ah, I just, what a classic Brandon sanderson ask. oh moment. Yeah.
1: I mean that that is that one line, you know, by the way, that dress you are wearing is green. That is uh um like if know, I was editing a, a that I would add a glass breaking noise no. in
0: that the glass shattering noise right there. Like <laughs> oh my god. Right?
1: Um I, I will say I believe that line was written by Robert Jordan. Mm. Um uh, I, I know the, the scene know with Varen and Egwene uh, a visit from Baron Sedai, was written by robert jordan um uh, i don't know if he wrote the chapter before it or not but, oh, huh, uh, huh. but yeah that's yeah, awesome there's, man there's some just wonderful wonderful stuff uh, in this portion of the book um uh, a, another one that i uh that sticks with me is um the uh, siren point of view
0: Yes, where she's yes, you know,
1: uh, <laughs> you know the the, you know whatever the the accepted tells her like oh you know there's um. You know there's resistance up on the the twenty second floor and she's like what that's the novice, ween. yeah you know? <laughs> at first they,
0: they think the twenty second wait that's the brown quarters like what the browns yeah, yeah. they wouldn't be wait a second no they changed the novice quarters like that that. Further surprise, not just surprise, but the further incredulous surprise on top of that. And then the reversal was just handled... Executed so well.
1: Yeah. How in the world she trailed off, eyes widening slightly. Egwene.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like,
1: just... She just knows. She knows that it's Egwene. Of course it is, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, my God. Um. Another thing that Brandon does so well. So well. That's something that is so classic him... Is these long introspective sequences during which a character is really conflicted about themselves, usually about some form of perceived like hypocrisy in themselves. And in this case it was the chapter from Rand's point of view, just near the end here, just another man. As he prepares to devastate the Shan Chan in their place yeah. of power. You know, he sees the people, he compares them with the people that he's supposedly protecting. His his conflicted feelings, I think I think, are what made that sickness grow to the point of physically incapacitating him. Uh, Yeah, And the revelation that follows is just... So much more quaint for it. It's... Chef's kiss.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: That pretty much actually rounds up my style discussion. A lot of my points here are about characters.
1: Yeah, uh, that's fair. I mean, we we covered Matt pretty extensively... uh, In our last Gathering Storm episode. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just more of the same uh, in this one. Um, I, I will say... The backstories thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have a point here about those. Yep.
1: <laughs> no, just no.
0: Yeah. but So are we, are we just diving into Matt? Because I have, like, what, four, three? No, just three points sure,
1: here. Sure, we can we dive into Matt. There's not a lot that I had to say about him. Right. Uh, so it's a good, you know, quick one to get out of the way. Sure,
0: yeah. No, Hinder's Tap. You know, I loved that sequence the first time around, especially before I had more context for it in the future, like knowing that each person was going to be, as you so eloquently put, respawned. Yeah. With sunrise i mean obviously that's that's ter- in itself is terrifying for a whole slew of other reasons but considering what i thought this scenario was at first that random isolated populations of people are just losing their shit and killing each other for good like yeah consider the alternative i was like damn it wasn't quite as scary but i mean i should say maybe it's scary for a different reason now that we have more knowledge on it but well
1: right yeah that was one of those Uh, One of those sequences in The Wheel of Time that stands out, because The Wheel of Time is not a horror series, but there are these moments of horror. Mm. And uh, in a lot of ways, Hinterstep has those trappings of, like, that classic horror, you know, uh, feel to it.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy, does it ever. And I want to say, I do enjoy how Brandon writes Matt's action sequences. And I know you, not you, Drew, but you, the collective you as the fandom— uh, you can say what you want about how he handles Matt's dialogue, but when when Matt gets to throw knuckles or uh, Power Forge <laughs> bladed staffs rather, I think Sanderson honestly handled that with flair. Like, I, I, I don't know how I feel about the use of and that's when the screaming began. But, other than that, top-notch action sequence, I thought. Matt being the reluctant hero, fighting with the women. I love the fact that he was still finding a way to fight with the women that he's trying to rescue. Jolene and Edicina, mm-hmm. right? He's cursing them out for being for being foolish, nearly killing them. Um, he might not often... Sa- this is what I'm trying to say. He might not often sound like Jordan's Matt, but he definitely at times feels like Jordan's Matt. And I, I want to give credit where credit's due. Like, this is a stellar Matt scene.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that Go Brandon far, Sanderson has, uh, you know, pretty well nailed down across all of his writing... Is that like when that guy wants to go into an action scene? It's going to be a killer action scene. He's he has a really cinematic style. You can you can very vividly see what's happening in his fights, uh, but he doesn't let it get bogged down in the details. It's fluid. It moves fast. Um, you know there there are certain scenes um, in Mistborn and Stormlight Archive that that stand out, and there are scenes like this in. In Hinterstep in the Wheel of Time that Brandon Sanderson wrote that stand out in that mm. way.
0: Yeah, like this might be my favorite Sanderson Matt scene, with the exception, the possible exception of one near towards the end of Towers of Midnight. But we're not there yet, so
1: mm. if it's if it's one I'm thinking of, I I believe that was also a Robert Jordan scene actually.
0: Oh, ho, ho, ho. Uh, now I have now you have my interest. We definitely have to go over that again mm-hmm. when we get there. Uh, so that's oh, a discussion yeah. for Towers of Midnight Part Two. Um, yeah, and my last map point was here, in the village, uh, Trust Terror. I did not like the fabricated stories. No. It, it felt it, so forced yeah. and out of place, like, such a hard no from me. Like, on uh, the
1: Nope. Yeah, I, I very much agree there. Um, I will say, though, on, like, while that felt out of character for Matt, it felt very much in character for him to treat Varen's letter the way he does. That, of course he's not gonna read the letter.
0: Yeah. Of course. You know, and he has to he has to double down, you know, convince himself that he of course he's not going to read it. He can yeah. wait 30 days, can't he?
1: Yeah. And that felt very uh on point for Matt to me. That oh. was that specific bit um reading through this again rang the most true to the Matt that I know and love from Robert Jordan. Oh.
0: Remind me to bring up that uh, my my issue, my particular issue in Towers of Midnight, with that thirty days time limit there as well. Because okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be very very irritated about something at that point. But going forward, who should we talk about next? I have a ton to say about Egwene, and I have a ton to say about Rand, and some to say about Nynaeve. Uh, let's start with Egwene. Okay. Okay. Should I kick us off? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't recall if I if I did or didn't get around to briefly defending Gowen last episode. That does not mean I like him. It does not mean I like him at all. But right now, I do have one teensy little thing to offer in his defense, just something small. And it's it's not really so much a defense of Gawain as it is a condemnation of Egwene, which is kind of why I'm piping up here and my you know my points about Egwene. But there comes a moment in I forget which chapter um, But Egwene thinks to herself That she's glad that He Gowan, He doesn't look ashamed When she reprimands him Only perturbed Because As Amarylline And she thinks this Very specifically She needed a man Who would speak his mind In private But in public She'd need someone Who supported her Couldn't he see that I wrote Bitch Where do you think You are right now I'll give you a hint (laughs) it's not in public you know and when he calls her on it, he's just he says you love me which I'm okay a little on, on her side it's Gavin Gavin Gowan come on bro like <laughs> Jesus man laid on thick enough why don't you she responds with Egwene the woman loves you but Egwene the Ammerlin is furious with you but you know maybe he wouldn't have such a hard time distinguishing the two if he ever got to see Egwene the woman
1: right right yeah. Right, but
0: th- the last time he saw that bitch was in Kyrian, in Aiel skirts, hiding from Isodai. So, calm down. Perhaps you can understand his bumbling a little more too, because he's definitely bumbling. But Egwene, if your horse was any higher, you'd be in stable orbit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's just um, me.
0: That's just starting off. I still have more to say, but uh, that's the end of that point. So I'll let you. Uh, well, yeah. Uh,
1: there. I was going to say, like overall, Egwene in this portion of the book, I tend to like a lot, uh, but there are two specific things that frustrate me uh, about her, and those are um, her uh, this scene that you're bringing up with Gawain and how she treats Swan after Swan brings her out of the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I said in, in the uh, you know the recap, how like technically Swan broke orders. To to go in and save Egwene. And Egwene acts like that is the very end of the world. And that it undermined everything Egwene had just accomplished in the tower. And it was all for naught now because she needed to stay there. It's like, no, Egwene. Literally none of that was undone. And had Swan not gone in, you probably would have been killed by a blood knife while you were there unconscious.
0: Oh, she doesn't know either of those things yet, though.
1: No, but this is um
0: but the reason why she should but she, trust him in the future i think
1: and and she doesn't give swan much of a chance to explain herself swan does know about the blood knives you know like swan, swan had to save about the blood knives well she had to save gareth bryan
0: that was a blood knife that wasn't just a regular assassin with a poison needle thing
1: i mean that was that was my impression was that it was uh, a blood knife oh yeah
0: cool okay i actually i'm gonna but but either way that, i mean either
1: way swan knows that there were assassins in the tower going around trying to like take out targets of opportunity yeah and eggween would have been the most opportunistic of targets yeah you know yeah like um, lying there insensate. uh <laughs> it, but of course eggween w- cannot hear any defense from swan anything that swan says just makes eggween angrier you know, and, and the way she treats Swan after everything Swan did to build Egwene's foundation from the get-go. Egwene never would have gotten to where she was without Swan. And then the moment Swan stops being of immediate use to her, she treats her like garbage.
0: Yeah, and, and in Swan's defense, again, not like she needs defense, I'm sure a lot of people will agree. But something that I found really telling about Swan's attitude and her character as just as a human being, her, her whole moral code, she considers this... A worthy exchange. She thinks, I may very well have just lost Egwene's trust forever. But then mm-hmm. she comes to terms with that. She comes to grips with that and thinks, well, if that's what it takes, that's what it took. You know, because yeah. in Swan's mind, the rebel faction was about to leave Egwene. Like, this was this was the last thing that she could do. So, you know, uh, I, I can see how, how Egwene would be pissed off at Swan right now because she's acting on a lot of, uh or I should say, a, a real lack of information. At this point. But in the future, like, Egwene is definitely too harsh with Swan, too harsh with Gal- with Galwin, well, but especially with Swan.
1: What frustrates me is that, yes, she has a lack of, you know, information, but she's also resistant to getting new information yeah, from yeah. Swan. Yeah. Like, she, she has to be self-righteous and angry, and she wouldn't be able to do that if she let Swan actually, you know, actually explain things. So, Swan is literally like out in the cold... cold. Yeah, you know, tethered outside her tent like a dog, basically, you know, begging on her knees for forgiveness. It's like because there are no explanations, there is only anger and and uh, forbearance yeah. on Egwene's part. It's like, not
0: becoming in in a in an Amerlin figure.
1: No, but but at the same time, uh, a lot of Egwene in the tower in this section yeah. is awesome. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, I I still have more to bitch about with Egwene, but I will have some to actually champion her for towards the end of my Egwene points here too. Definitely. Um, A specific thought that Egwene has, another one that pissed me off though. um, (laughs) (laughs) There's a few. When she leaves Swan after hearing the news that Gowen has joined the rebel forces, the rebel tower forces, she considers her options. One of those options being setting up a second white tower, but she immediately decides against it. Because not only would they compete, but, and this is what irritated me, nothing would deter the other nations or societies from setting up their own schools of channeling. That's not a quote, sorry, I realize I I said that in a monotone like it was. But that's basically the gist of her thought there, her thought process, that nothing would deter the other nations or societies themselves from just joining up or setting up their own schools of channeling. Could you imagine that, Drew? A world um, where every bit of feminine use of the one power is not entirely governed by Egwene's blessing.
1: Yeah. Imagine yeah. that. Mm. So That would be that would be just terrible.
0: Oh my god. What a nightmare <laughs> world that would be. Um but to to start moving into uh, into some into some things to compliment her on. Her fight against the Shan Chan was so badass. Yes, it's just so badass, and it honestly, for for me at this part in the series, it still makes up more than makes up for my issues with with who she is at this point. I mean, wow, what a move to 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 rally the novices to teach them to link and form organized resistance. This the scene as you as you brought up from Saren's point of view, is just, just perfect. They realize some of the blasts are coming from the tower, and they pinpoint the location. I sh- I mean I shivered this time around, like. 50 reads later, I still shivered. Oh, my God. Yeah. um,
1: While I certainly have my criticisms for Egwene's tendencies as a leader, uh, she does have some good leadership qualities. This is where we saw them on full display. She is best when leading by example. When she spends so much time, like, trying to be a leader that's when she starts doing stupid things but when she just lets herself be herself and goes and does things as an example to others she tends to do a lot of good and this is I mean like I said this is probably the single best example of it in the series where uh, she becomes that role model for the novices and at the same time she provides an example for the Aes Sedai who are all a, a mess at this point. None of them have any clue what they're doing. The battle of is a joke. Adalorna is like embarrassed <laughs> because joke. they're they're so terrible at what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And Egwin provides the example. And that's why, you know, more than anything else Egwene did, except for maybe uh embarrassing Elida in front of, you know, so many of the uh higher-ups, um, it, more than anything else she did. This is what makes the Ajah heads decide, yes, she deserves to be Amerlin. We need to vote her. Vote her in. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's it's when she's offering an example of virtue, not when she's getting into the mud and muck of Aes Sedai politicking.
0: Yeah. And that's again,
1: when Egwene is the best.
0: Again, is it and is it simply enough to, to draw all these conclusions from seeing what we are from Egwene's point of view? No. They decided to have this entire discussion happen inside the White Tower, away from Egwene's presence. These are mm-hmm. characters who are talking about Egwene, not to or in front of Egwene, and I think that's all the reason why it's it's as heavy as it is. It, it's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, we have... it,
1: it just goes back to you know the the style points that we have hammered home over and over and over <laughs> in this series the the way Robert Jordan and now Brandon Sanderson uh, wield point of view whether you use it as a sledgehammer to drive a point home or you use point of view like a scalpel to subtly you know <laughs> I love it I love the analogy. On, uh, you know, themes and tropes and things like that. Uh, of all the things, you know, uh, I, I don't think I brought this up in in our first Gathering Storm episode, but uh, of all the things that Brandon Sanderson does as a writer, I think Robert Jordan's influence and his style is most similar in the way they use point of view.
0: Yeah, I could, I could you know what, I agree with that. I haven't done a full dive comparing the two, but... Just as a knee-jerk reaction, yeah, I'd, I'd be very tempted to agree. That's the manner in which he most exemplifies everything he learned from Robert Jordan.
1: Yeah, and and like uh, without spoiling anything, I've been doing a lot of Stormlight Archive reading recently, <laughs> and uh, and there, you know, those hallmarks are so much there. You can see the lessons that Brandon learned from reading the Wheel of Time and from writing the Wheel of Time and applying them into the Stormlight Archive, into his own works. Oh, it's so. I know we got off a little bit from from Egwene there, but
0: that's all right, my man. But
1: that's that's the the core of it is Egwene is a point of view trap in so many ways. People talk about Matt being an unreliable narrator, and yes, he is. Egwene is also an unreliable narrator. So when we have these scenes of people outside her, from their points of view, uh, ruminating on Egwene the person, that is when we get a lot more, you know, knowledge and insight into just what kind of a character she is.
0: Mm, totally agreed. Totally agreed. We get the end of Elida do Avinri a I mean, not the true oh. end, we see her again. <laughs> but we—it it is the end of her reign of terror. It sucks that she's collared, but in this case, it only sucks for her. Right? Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> and honestly, can you think of a more fitting end to the reign of that disgusting human being?
1: Yeah. Um, I thought it was appropriate. Uh, I didn't it see was it coming. poetic. It. Yeah. yeah poetic. Oh, I I did see it coming uh, when...
0: I don't know why I didn't see it coming. It seems obvious, Yeah, when obvious, this book right? first
1: came out. Yeah.
0: Just deserves Be- to sweeter.
1: Because so much of what she did in these latter books was about, like, oppressing others. Was you know, denigrating Shemiran, you know, demoting her from said Sedai, yeah. the way she treated Egwene as more or less a slave, and and the way she treated Alviarin. Yes, Alviarin's evil. Elida didn't know that. Elida just didn't like
0: yeah, her. that's it. That's her. It's her reasoning that <laughs> pisses me off more than anything else. Look, like Shemiran. What did Shemiran do? She was. She just. She just, un- she just wasn't point uh, as poised as an said Sedai should be
1: really right that's it that's ultimately what going
0: back as far as I think the fires of heaven she was and
1: so Elida broke her spirit broke her will to the point where she was like all I'm worth being is a scullery maid basically you know a washwoman." and uh yeah yeah
0: Yeah. Um, (sighs) to round up my my Egwene points here I did not like Egwene's speech following the reunification of the white tower no. I found it to be corny, as well as the reactions of those around her. Um, I mean, look, novices, I can see. They're supposed to be practicing for the shawl already. The accepted, I'm a little... Uh, come on, they should have a little more poise than that. They're already supposedly partway there. But the uh, the few Aes Sedai who we see losing themselves in that cheer, no, I, I don't I don't buy that. It just felt a tad too gratuitous for Egwene fanboys and fangirls.
1: Uh, the other thing that I wanted to point out with that speech... I've uh, heard from a couple of friends who are blacksmiths, who who took issue with the way Egwene describes.
0: Oh, uh, (laughs) you're talking to a welder, my man. Trust me. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, um, I I know that that's not necessarily the most accurate thing uh, to um, how forging works.
0: Yeah, but, but you know, last time I brought my metalworking expertise to the podcast was to bitch about Perrin wielding a four-pound hammer like a feather, yeah. and then I yeah, got yeah. flamed for that one. No, I just didn't. I'm I'm kidding. Uh, no, I mean, it... <laughs> there's a couple people that are like, come on, Rob. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I I know. I said that during the episode. I get it. I was being pedantic, but come on. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I tend to give this speech a pass uh, for that sense because, like, it's not about the accuracy of blacksmithing, it's the metaphor. Yeah, and uh, let's, let's be real.
0: Know. How much does Egwene know about metalworking? I mean, right. this is something that she probably assumes that all the other eyes that I don't know any more than she does, so maybe she's, you know, she took some artistic liberty. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> what, what I take most umbrage with in this speech, though,
0: is how... Uh, Umbridge is a word? Uh-huh. I'm just finding that out now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, I said I was going to point that out every time we got <laughs> to that point in the podcast. Normally I point it out in my notes when I read an unfamiliar word, but now when Drew says an unfamiliar word, I'm going to... Umbridge, the character from Harry Potter, has an actual namesake. Good, good to know. I assume yeah. it means, like, detestable. Yeah, yeah, like... Odious. Uh, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. Um. Anyway. Sorry, go uh, ahead. What I don't like is this line. You rebels before me have done something terrible. You have shattered the tower and raised up a rival Amarlin. For the first time, troops have been marshaled by Aes Sedai against Aes Sedai. I led those troops. I know of this shame. Necessary or not, it is a shame. And so it is that I require your admission of guilt. You must take responsibility for your crimes, even those performed in the name of the greater good. So, what she just did there is so freaking hypocritical. She's like, this is awful. It may have been necessary, but this is awful that we did this. You all need to be punished for this. I know you did it because I let it, but only you need to be punished, not me.
0: Yeah, she should have at least mentioned some form of, of sure personal penance.
1: Right? Yeah, but like, then again,
0: can the admiralin does yes? she interpret the seat of the uh, sorry does she interpret the seat of the Amarylline in being able to do that? I don't know. I'm sure the yeah to, know, that, no Elida
1: Elida did it. Elida well, no, was forced was to, to do it to by Alviarin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She
0: was for. Oh, but then again, she proclaimed that it was. Well, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, point it out.
1: Yeah. The, this this speech, for that reason, bugs the hell out of me because like she she treats, um, she treats the rebels very unfairly here, uh, and. It, unfairly in relation to herself i can see like a a justification for why she says there needs to be punishment here there needs to be you know reparations made but the fact that she excludes herself from that is so ridiculous yeah
0: i can she says i can see why she
1: says you must take responsibility for your crimes not we must take responsibility for our crimes she excludes herself two sentences after saying i led those troops
0: yeah Somebody who is as clever as Egwene, who 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 was able to give advice to so many Aes Sedai in the weeks previously, and give them very very neat and deft solutions to their very intricate problems, and therefore earn her respect. I think Egwene should have been able to come up with something a little more um, graceful in terms of yeah yeah yeah. I don't know something better than just leaving herself out entirely. Like yeah yeah. She uh, it's good that she mentioned she was guilty, and it's good that I think it's good that she didn't kind of really weaken herself. At all, but I think she could have found a more graceful way around that. I mean, that was kind of it. Does leave a lot of room for okay, but yeah, you know, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I get you. So,
1: like, I, I'm quite certain that a lot of a lot of those women are like, "What the hell, man?"
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we see some of them cheering, which is part of why I'm like, "Okay, come on," like, yeah. But mm-hmm. anyway, that, and so this is this. That's the end of my Egwene points. Besides just saying this, this may be officially the last of anything I like about Egwene going forward. Oh. There is so one I, moment in particular I know I'm going to cheer for her, but as a person, I despise her unconditionally going forward. Well, I, don't know.
1: I have one more note on her, and okay. that is, I think, one of the smartest things she ever does in this series is picking Sylviana.
0: Yes! I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about that or if we'd have time, but yeah, that was definitely yeah. very, very deft.
1: So, uh, shall we move on to Rand, then?
0: Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, because,
1: man, this is... this is it. For Rand. This is... Um, you know, some of the best character work in the entire series.
0: Thank uh, you. Oh, I was, so, I was so prepared to have to defend that statement coming from me. Yes. Yeah,
1: it's it's wonderful. Uh, the, the Rand character arc in this book is what makes this book land as high on my ranking of Wheel of Time books as it does. Uh, there There are plenty of things in this book that I have and will criticize, Rand's character arc is emphatically not one of them. <laughs> yeah,
0: And it's so good that of all the characters that, or I shouldn't say of all the characters, of the few characters that a lot of people seem to agree that he handled poorly, he being Brandon, um, he, he nailed Randolph Thor, arguably the biggest, yeah. most influential character in all of epic fantasy. He nailed the, the, the very essence of that character and his journey. It was... I, that's some of his best work ever, ever. Yeah, I find ever.
1: it interesting how uh, when Brandon gets asked about writing characters in the Wheel of Time, he tends to say the characters I struggled with the most were Matt and Avienda, and the character that I understood
0: the best was Perrin. And it oh, it reads, it reads. But
1: like well, but he never talks about Rand, and oh, I think no, he but... did Rand the best of them all.
0: Yeah. I just don't like Perrin as much as a person, as a character, so any any issues I have with Brandon's uh, portrayal of Perrin, I also just take as... It's not really Brandon, it's just Perrin. So, I give Brandon a lot of leeway, but for me, yeah, definitely it's Rand. I hear people talk about Perrin all the time, about how well he handled Perrin. Fucking nailed Rand, though.
1: He did a good job with Perrin. I'm not saying he was was poor working with that character, Uh, but I just... Rand is on another level. Yeah. Um, you know, going from this uh man, the
0: I'll say this. The Rand... point
1: that feels like a Nadir with killing Semeridge and nearly killing Min under the influence of the Domination Band, and then going even darker. Even darker going to the point twice. where where he's where he balefires Natron's barrow. And yep. then going even darker from there, where he's ready to balefire like half of Ebudar, basically, oh. and then thinking about how he's gonna go to Amador and Balefire the Fortress of Truth there, and then he's gonna go to Tanchico, and he's like planning out where he's just gonna commit genocide.
0: I would have thought that his lowest moment would have been when he was about to commit patricide.
1: Oh, with Tang, like, even,
0: even even worse than patricide, Balefire. There's got to be a, a a bigger word, <laughs> right? Like I, I
1: so so there there are a couple of things here like. Um the Tam and the Ebudar scenes are pretty inextricably linked. The TAM aspect of it is the the personal low for Rand. Right. Oh, right. The Ebu Dar scene is the like the external versus the internal. You know? They're they're two sides of the same coin. This this like two chapter segment here at the end of the book is when Rand is at his worst. And then he has his turn. He has his apotheosis and his moment of realization yeah. atop Dragon Mountain. Yeah, I
0: would say and it's very... And he comes
1: out of it back into the light. And, man.
0: Was, yeah, I would say it was absolutely necessary to have both the internal and external conflicts come together at the same moment. So that, that this transformation into this next person that Rand becomes yes, yeah. is, is all the more quaint. Yeah, no. Sanderson is just so good, so good at writing Rand, precisely where he needs to be, before his big revelation and this transfer, this transformation atop Dragonmount. Um, there is this moment in chapter twenty-nine, though, that like going up to these points, it gets so dark. Um, the, he's going over the list. Rand is going over the list, and just uh-huh. before, just before, Luz Theron adds Min's name. Rand has a thought that I think is very indicative of the rock bottom that he's reached in terms of his outlook for his future. He thinks he would have more names to add before he died. Not only is he assuming future failure and future pain, but he's just inadvertently, like, added those last three words, before he died. And it just goes mm-hmm. to show that his outlook now is just, how much can I save before I die? And it's just so depressing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, uh, man, and, and Nynaeve, you have to feel for Nynaeve throughout all this, because she's the only one Dark Rand trusts even a little bit at this point. You know, like, she's well, the exactly. only one who has, yeah. but she's the only one who has, like, real influence on him. Right. And, uh, and, and this is a woman who's known Rand since he was a baby, you know? So you have to think about what it would do to Nynaeve seeing him go down this path. Mm-hmm. Seeing have... him become so twisted, so cruel, and then ultimately seeing him just nuke what amounts to, like, you know, a palace the size of a small town.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I do. I def- definitely have something to say about that for Nynaeve when we get to my points about Nynaeve. They're not long or, or many in number. Um, but continuing on with Rand, though, I, d- I do like how we got... <clears throat> sorry, my throat is really screwed up. I got that coronavirus, I guess. I <laughs> <Yeah>. I do. <laughs> I, that's just a joke, everybody, at the moment. Um, I do like how we get a little bit of foreshadowing, though, with Rand's personality starting to meld with Luz Theron's. Um, in the beginning of Before the Stone of Tear, Rand is arguing with Luz Theron, and is like half-trance, and, th- and their voices start to mix. He says, and I say he, Rand, not Luz Theron in his head, but Rand himself says, they cursed by my name. And he says, here we are again and again. Uh, like like I just said, that's Luz Theron's voice. It's like the first whiff of a delicious, a delicious meal that the chef has been cooking in the kitchen for the past 10 minutes. It's just... Oh, yeah. It's lovely. <laughs> and, and I know what you're thinking at this point. Did Rob just refer to Zen Rand as... A delicious meal? Yes. Yes, he did. Is that perhaps a little gay? Maybe. Maybe it is. Should that be a problem? No. No, it isn't.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, but, yeah, I I mean, I, I think there's, going back to the point of view bit and, you know, maybe writing style, it is also, like, really, really cool how uh, Brandon dealt with Rand in this book where you know we already talked about the two scene and, and when we talk about natron's barrel like that wasn't from rand's point of view it was from min's point of view and we get these scenes around rand from other people's points of view but we get just enough inside his head to truly understand how desolate his internal landscape is hmm. and then i'm gonna have a, a, another discussion about this in towers of midnight oh um as, you know, when when we finish this book with Zen Rand, as you said, or Jesus Rand, as some people call him. You
0: know, <laughs> I haven't heard that one yet.
1: Uh, Super Saiyan Rand. Um,
0: I don't like that one.
1: Yeah, uh, the, um, the way the story is constructed around him makes so much more of an impact than if we just got all of it from inside his head. Uh, this goes back all the way to uh, Dragon Reborn, when most of that book we only had, what, like three, had three or scenes, four Rand yeah. points of view, yeah, and yeah. then yeah. and then finally we got like a full chapter with him at the end. Mm-hmm. But uh, here we we have a similar thing going on in this portion of the book. A significant chunk of the Rand scenes are not from Rand's point of view, and then at the end we get these like you know the two or three straight chapters of Rand. At his darkest.
0: At his darkest. Exactly. And where then. We need to be. Coming
1: out of the darkness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, seeing, seeing Rand take a more direct and prominent hand in events. Um, you know, because in Knife of Dreams, he was mostly just kind of biding his time in the countryside. Granted, it was mm-hmm. still very, very eventful. I mean, that, that Shadow Spawn attack on Algarin's Manor, wow. Um, but mm. writing mm-hmm. it in this book, he's, he's taking a more prominent role like he's riding into bandar ebon he's immediately tasking himself with finding the king restoring order and feeding the people if he can Uh, my heart broke for him a little bit when millisere chadmar tells him that he can be crowned quickly or however she phrases it like okay appropriate response from rand asserting that you know he's not there to rule erod like erod Doman. he's he's you know there to instill order but what is it like to step into a country, not with the intent really to conquer or even just to liberate, but just to provide leadership and aid, perhaps. And to have that assumption. You're here for another crown, aren't you? It's like, damn. It's just mm-hmm. it hurts. It hurts for Rand. You know?
1: Yeah, and it and it hurts for it's Heralda, uh you know, by proxy, because you know, we've now gotten to know him
0: a little pretty bit. well. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, he, he only got his first point of view a couple books ago, but we've gotten a, a reasonable amount of him at this point and we understand how much his love for his country dictates what he does. Mm. And and to think about like he's not even there for for Rand rolling up and and everybody immediately buckling under and assuming he's a despot and all of this and Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I have a lot more to say about, uh, I almost said Ingtar. Oh, my God. What <laughs> Ronald Interalda uh, in, oh. in Towers of Midnight, for sure. Yes. I <laughs> to say about him in Towers of Midnight. Um, but, keep, you know, keeping on with Rand, I'm about halfway through my points here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. I love, but these are shorter going forward. Um, these are more like just smaller thoughts, besides here. Um, I love that Cat Swain escapes him in the street, but we immediately switch to his point of view and see that he did, in fact, notice her there. Creepy. Mm-hmm. Ominous. Just badass. I loved it. Um, Rand with the power play when he's interrogating the boy curb. Mm-hmm. The, the one compelled. Oh my god, man. The, the the air, the atmosphere in that room. I can feel it suffocating me when I read it. When he, when he yeah. quietly asks him, do you think, if I so willed it, or however he phrases it, that I could end your, I could stop your heart simply because I wanted to. I wanted Whoa. it to happen. It's just like, and the fact that he's so quiet it's just mm. oh my goodness um meeting with Tuan. you you brought this up earlier formal parlay between the dragon reborn daughter of the nine moons something we've been waiting for so many books to see and to see it end the way it did was one of the most terrifying things i think to happen in this whole series Um, more than any other bubble of evil more than than the bail screams like that we see this this ceiling ceiling this scene has a feeling. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) The scene has a feeling of wrongness of, of monumental things happening Yeah. as they aren't supposed to. Tuan's point of view is she's like struggling against her own desire to capitulate to his, his uh, effect as a Taviran, this aura of darkness that she almost spots and latches onto as a hold against that, that, that feeling is just, is terrifying. I don't know if I had goosebumps or goose mountains, after reading this for the first time, it was... Oh, God.
1: Well, so, one of the things that has always stood out to me about this scene is that, uh, yes, it's it's creepy, it's intense, it's dark, but on top of that, it's a subversion of expectations because for, you know, readers who track this kind of thing, clear back in The Dragon Reborn, while quotes the prophecies of the dragon and says you know that he is meant to bind the nine moons to serve him and you know so if if anybody remembers that as they're reading through and you start realizing what the nine moons means you're like oh and so when this scene starts and Rand says look this is what's going to happen you're going to call off your armies you're going to like support me like he's basically trying to bind the nine moons to serve him so you're expecting it to go a certain way because the prophecies say it will and whenever you hear about the shanshan prophecies you immediately want to say oh those are twisted those aren't real but yet the shanshan version of them is what ends up coming true and there's still some leeway where like you know oh yes they do serve him in a sense but he also gets down on his knees
0: yeah, before well, we Tuan you know, we don't know and that so yet.
1: yeah but but yeah i'm i'm talking about the the subversion of expectation here sure. and and how how what we expected to happen is not what happened you know it's sp- and, it, and it's focused in this particular scene where if it were to happen the way we expected this is when it would have happened you know
0: yeah, we were so ready for it, so ready for it. We were salivating for it, and then it all goes wrong. Oh, mm. yeah, uh,
1: so wrong. <laughs> and I know a lot of people get upset with Tuan for how she acts in this chapter and how she she goes ahead with the attack on Tarvalon. I used to
0: be, I still am on a tiny bit, but I understand.
1: See, that. like I I very much understand. I don't. I mean, it's not great, but I understand why she did it. Like. She she saw just how influenced by the shadow Rand has gotten. She knows, listen, like, if if we buckle under and let this guy just do whatever he wants, this is gonna go really, really badly. So Yeah. I can't blame her. I think she's uh she was a little misguided in attacking the White Tower instead of attacking Rand himself, but you know.
0: Yeah. I agree. Um we talked about natron's Barrow. i mean how am i supposed to find the words to describe the epicness the beauty the terror of that sequence i, I mean i can't um but finally finally my last point with brand finally 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 i wrote brand is reunited with tamil thor and mm-hmm. what a heartbreaking awkward and adorable moment for both of them what a terrifying thing for both of them and eventually what a wonderful thing for the both of them like I love that Tam's arrival was the catalyst for Rand's transformation into the one true dragon reborn. Like it's just so perfect and it's handled so well. It, it brings tears to my eyes every time.
1: Yeah, it, it's a it's a really touching scene, um, heartbreaking, <laughs> mm. but but definitely well done. Yeah. Well written.
0: Yep. Yep. And the last character I have to discuss is just a couple of points about Nynaeve. Should okay. I kick us yeah. off then. I I'll just say, I love Nineve. I love Nineve. I love Nineve. That's my first point. <laughs> my first point is just that <laughs> statement three times. My second point is she is amazing, and my third point is that the work she does on Rand's behalf, of like investigating the death of the messenger boy, uh, like this is Nineve when she has achieved perfection as a character in my eyes. Her bleeding heart is balancing Rand's cold ruthlessness so nicely, but it's still failing, so it's ominous. She takes control of people around her, but she doesn't subject them. She listens to Rand, but occasionally, you know, speaks up to counter him. Or maybe just spins something differently. I don't know. I I honestly don't think I can find a flaw with her character in who she is or how she's written, if you paid me money to.
1: Yeah, like she she has grown so immensely since she left Elaine.
0: Yes, where yeah.
1: she she has had to mature and had to step into a certain role uh, as an advisor for Rand, and that that dealing with Rand as he has become Dark Rand has shown her how her old way of doing things, her inconsiderate, uh, you know, her bullying, that kind of stuff, just that's not going to work. She needed to learn and grow. And become better at being a role model, and being a teacher, and being an advisor, and a supporter, and a healer.
0: Yeah, no, it was a wonderful job on on carrying on this like a spectacular naive Mister Sanderson. Bravo, well done. Um, naive heals compulsion. My girl Naive does the impossible for yep. the second time. I love her. She's amazing. Um, but then seeing her efforts repaid by Rand, not only refusing to go to Lan's aid, but considering using Lan's death as a potential advantage. Yeah. Oh my god, that's just, that's what the point I was gonna be making earlier when you, when you were talking about Nynaeve and and how Rand just kind of sc- like just screws her over yeah. so much in this section. It's just. This is this is what really pissed me off, and I, I knew that something had to give with Rand's character. And this is where I started to be like, okay, no, he is not going to beat the shadow as he is right now, or I shouldn't want mm-hmm. him to. That was cold, man. That was just oh, it was disgusting.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's scary to think about how close we were to Rand becoming what he was trying to fight. Where you know, if if. So many minute things hadn't happened. Rand could have gone off, faced the Dark One, won, and it would have been just as bad as if he lost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh boy! So that's that's the end of my uh, character discussion points here. I do have some, you know, miscellaneous to get out of okay. the way. But do you have any other like character points style or character discussion points you want to get out of the way before we do?
1: Uh, no. Uh. There are a couple more things that I don't want to touch on in this book, but I want to talk about them in relation to things in Towers of Midnight, so okay. I'll save it oh, for that.
0: Okay, okay. Um, I'll say I like how Sanderson handled the real face of Varen after we finally get to see it. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool. Something I've been waiting for for a long time. Um, and completely beside that, though, not even involved at all, I had a shower thought earlier today. <clears throat> I was reading some stupid internet joke or post or, or other about... Um, well, maybe if we paid our doctors like we paid our star athletes, we'd have a cure for this damn virus by now. This being coronavirus, for those who are listening <laughs> to this in the future. Um, this is what are we recording this on? March 22nd. It's my sister's birthday today. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. Happy birthday, Nikki. Um, but besides that, I'm going on here. Uh, I, what, okay, so I was preparing to write a retort to that statement right or that idea like oh maybe if we paid our doctors you know like we are star athletes and whatnot i really started to consider what society would look like what that society would look like and i realized holy crap that's the age of legends that's exactly what the entire <laughs> second age was that utopia where science and technological progress were the big earners their rock stars were fucking doctors and scientists and it struck me as really cool. Like as soon as I finished that shower, I whipped up my phone and I was like, well, "I gotta bring this one up on the podcast later today."
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, some of Avienda's punishments—brilliant, downright hilarious. Uh, moving water, <laughs> one drop on a finger at a time. Uh, I just—I don't know why I chuckle every time I get to that point. It's yeah, just- that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so genius. It's just so bad. It's so genius, though. Um, I'm frustrated as hell with Gawain, but who honestly, like, who's not at this point? Um, I, I'm also not holding Egwene entirely blameless. I, I made that very clear earlier, but I honestly think, how about this? I honestly think that if she could have just, if she, if she can have semi regular meetings in Teleronriad with the Rebels, maybe she can put, say, 30 minutes of time aside one night in Teleronriad for Gawain. Let him, let a man use the ring just for a few minutes so that she can rationally explain everything to him about why it's so important that she stays there and what she's trying to accomplish. I mean, I, I, okay, I get I'm No, fully no, a- you,
1: you don't understand, Rob. Uh, men are lesser beings, and they don't deserve to know.
0: Like, I'm aware that this isn't this is just another example. That's a good point. I hadn't considered that, actually. I forgot which world we were in for a second there. I'm fully aware that this is just another example of, you know, communication is key in The Wheel of Time, and none of our characters use it. But, yep. God... Damn, so much of her subordinate's headaches could be relieved by that Ooh. one heart-to-heart with Gowan that would probably be worth, like, losing the time that she would get in issuing orders. Mm-hmm. I think. Maybe. Um, going on, though. I have three more. Finding out Shiryam is Black Aja was horrifying. Damn. Corella, um, Sadai, who had to announce the elephant in the room, Min's viewings, I'm sure by this point a lot of the fandom was was been was using that same logic that Corella had put forward if Min's viewings always come like they always come true how is it that we're worried about losing if some of these things can only happen after the last battle but Min herself explains it and not to Corella even though ostensibly it is so but to the fans except that you know one of my viewings not coming true is kind of the definition of the unraveling of the pattern right right Yeah. Okay, yeah <laughs> and, and my last miscellaneous point here Watching Tamal Thor put Catswain in her place.
1: Yes. Oh, yes. when he comes back from that meeting with Rand, and he's like, You have got to be kidding me. You
0: know? <laughs> so much win. So much win. So that's the end of my oh. miscellaneous points. I'm ready to go on to our favorite scenes if you've got nothing else to uh, kick out of the uh, way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm ready for three favorite scenes. What do you got?
0: Okay. Um, mine are gonna be pretty pretty predictable I think because there are just so many perfect things that I have to bring up in this book um, Rand obliterating nature's barrow but mostly that line that he has just as he does it forgive me for calling this mercy as well how yeah. how does how does a line that perfect I was gonna say end up in a book like this but then again of course it's a Sanderson book why not but like oh so much weight to that yeah. scene. So that's that's my third favorite. My second favorite... <coughs> pardon me. A Visit from Baron Sedai. Yep. Loved the scene. Loved everything about it. And Rand atop Dragon Mount is my favorite scene. And I it, it's like... I mean, I have to say that because it's literally my favorite moment in... Sorry, it's like my third... Second or third favorite moment in the entire series. <laughs> if it wasn't for this... Like sorry I should say if it wasn't my favorite in this book I'd have logistical problems defending that position in the future so you know, and I, I do like it so much because we also get so much more context for this scene knowing what it looks like from someone else's point of view yeah in Towers of Midnight so that's why I liked it and uh, one honorable mention you know Egwene in the White Tower as the Aes Sedai from Saren's point of view realize what's yes. happening and coming from above them, and that there's a, you know, <laughs> we found you a better rallying point. Although that's that's not yet. But, uh, <laughs> great. So great. Anyway, that's it. That's my favorite scenes.
1: Okay. So, uh, yeah, my my third favorite scene is what you just mentioned. It's Egwene it defending the tower, um, you know, stepping up to the plate, mm. where uh, so many of the Aes I could not. Um, my second favorite is also A Visit from Varen Sedai. Uh, just the answer to such a long-time mystery. Uh, it was brilliantly written. It just wonderful all around. And my favorite scene in this book is The Last That Could Be Done. Uh, oh, when, I forgot
0: about parts. part one scenes. Yeah. Oh um,
1: that, that scene is... It's not one of my favorite in like the whole series, but I think it is one of the best written in the whole series. That's up there with the Roydian sequences. You Whoa. Know, that's that's Whoa. up there with, uh, Whoa. with a time on, for a iron.
0: There. Holy just a time just for the, iron. The
1: yeah. intensity, the, the 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 sentence level writing is so powerful there. I I will never forget the first time I read that scene I i oh, mean it I was mean. it is imprinted in flames yeah. on my memory it, it's so good it's so intense just it deserves all the praise that people give it
0: hmm. well put um, oh, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna respond to that and I forget why I love this scene so much I totally forgot about all the scenes that we had in the first part like oh my god um, but yeah, Sanderson executing this scene so well, so damn well. It, it was it was one of those points at which, as a reader, you smile and you're like, okay, this book is in the right hands, and it has to be if, if you can imagine th- these yeah. moments with Randa talk Dragon Mount or Randa blittering Natron's Barrow, or the scene that you just talked about. These have to be moments that Team Jordan had to read at one point and just go, we found the right guy, we really did.
1: Yeah,
0: it's so good. Ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's about it for me, man.
1: Okay. Um. I I think that takes us to the final draft, then. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it takes us to the final draft, and I will kick us off because, um, I'm actually not drinking any alcohol at the moment. I've uh, okay. We we've had a a big upheaval lately, a big tragedy that uh, I'm still getting over. But we we decided, or we decided, I decided that I'm going to lay off drinking for a little bit. Kind of marks an appropriate part of my time too um so t- for today i'm having the most delicious fruit juice that anybody can get anywhere oh really yes and that is a bold claim and i understand that because this is from House farms there is a place very nearby. I think about 10-15 minutes away from my place, in in Wheatley, I think it is. I'm not sure if they have more locations around North America. I actually didn't even look up if they're sold around the world or not. So, eh, you have to look it up yourself. But, Bolt House Farms, they make this delicious, delicious, almost like fruit smoothie level drink. Alright, Right now, I'm drinking the one called Blue Goodness, and it's got a whole bunch of berries on it. Blueberries, looks like blackberries. Oh, here we go. I have apples, bananas, blueberries, blackberries. Oh, I nailed it with the blueberries and blackberries. Mm. It is so good. I can't. Uh, Drew McCaffrey, <laughs> I've never has any liquid graced this tongue that brought such a feeling of euphoria every time I drink this stuff. I, I mean, the the taste and the smoothness is. I mean, it's a. It's like it's practically a smoothie, like I said. But it's so damn good. It's just expensive. It's kind of expensive, and it's got a lot of sugar. But oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. the best fruit juice <laughs> in the world. Uh, this is blue goodness from Bolthouse Farms, but I also highly recommend red goodness as well. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's good drinking. High it's praise. It's yeah.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I am drinking a beer today. Uh, if listeners will recall, uh, the first half of... The gathering storm i brought in a beer from stable 12 brewing company called dark and uh you know i talked about how how dark rand was getting how dark the series was getting at that point point. and today i brought in the counterpart to that this is also from stable 12 this is a blonde coffee stout it's a 7.5 percent it's pretty uh Pretty sweet. Um, There's a little bit of coffee, but not like super roasty coffee. Um, uh, Mm. It's just generally a a creamy, sweet stout. But as I said, it is the counterpart. This beer is called Light.
0: (laughs) Okay, I like the duality that we we saw evolve over time there.
1: Where where Rand was on the downward swing at the end of our last episode, now he is on the up. He's back into it's, the light.
0: It's literally perfect, because look at the epilogue that we had with that little shining light atop Dragon Mount. And it went yep. That's probably good news. Or yep. a good thing. I love that. That is so quaint. Very nicely done.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can't wait for our our next Towers of Midnight episode, because I have an even better beer for that one. Oh, but, no
0: shit. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I've, before-
1: I bought that beer, I, I will say for towers of midnight episode part one i bought that beer eight months ago oh,
0: oh damn i
1: saw it and i knew exactly what it was you gonna be for you
0: may have told me what it, you may have told me what it was Ooh. i'm gonna guess after we're done here after we're done here i'm gonna guess it um okay. but before we before we completely wrap up here i just wanted to bring up one more thing that I had uh, I had just considered. I'm looking at the timeline right now of the recording of this episode. Despite the fact that I started this by saying this is the longest amount of these I should say the largest amount of notes I've ever brought to the table for discussion points. I literally have I'm looking at it right now words 2420. I have almost 2500 words written, always oh, to talk about for this episode. But since it was only the two of us, which I wasn't expecting, um, it was this is actually turning out to be I think our very shortest Wheel of Time episode, and it might be the shortest. Regular weekly content episode we've ever recorded. Uh,
1: definitely not the shortest we've ever recorded. Might for, be the shortest Ra- Wheel of we of Time.
0: Well, how long was uh, Gen Lion's Ruin of Kings? Uh,
1: that was that was a little longer than this one. But Warrior of the Altai was shorter. Wrinkle in oh, Time was it? shorter. Um, I think oh. one of the Rune Lords was shorter. But like yeah, it's going
0: to end up around a minute seven, maybe a minute eight.
1: An hour I mean, seven, hour eight.
0: <laughs> something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah, uh, I I do think that takes us into our outro. This has been episode sixty of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we'll be doing the uh, first half of Towers of Midnight. Uh, as always, you know, check us out on Patreon if you appreciate you know what we're doing. Uh, all of that money goes to Pat, our sound engineer, Danny, our artist, for you know all of their wonderful work and support. Uh, they make this podcast happen. Without them, I don't know what we'd be doing.
0: A lot more boring, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, and, and you know, in addition to supporting them, uh, you'll get access to a lot of great stuff. We do monthly short fiction. We have bonus episodes on short stories and uh, general science fiction fantasy topics, stuff like that. Anyway, as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
0: Bye, everybody.